Collective Church, on average, how many words do you think you have in your mental dictionary? I'd be curious. How, how many words? Anybody want to take a stab? 12? 10,000? 8? <laughs> These are quite the guesses, James. Anything? How much? 15? 50. 50. Yeah, you're the closest. You win. Go take like five journals. You win. <laughs> It's been said that we have upwards of 40,000 words in our noodle, 40,000 words. So because of that, we're going to do a little word association this morning. It's like six degrees from Kevin Bacon, only much lamer. Okay, so everybody bear with me. Does everybody know how to play word association? I'm going to show you a word and you then discover what you immediately associate with that word. So we're going to do a couple test runs. So let's go word number one. All right. What was your immediate thought? Who had the immediate thought of even like the word amazing? Anything like that? Was that the only one you thought of amazing? You guys are real chatty. Next word. Forest. Forest. I can't hear this one. Lantern? Green. Oh, green lantern. Wow. I'm so mad at myself. Did anybody think cash? One person is honest enough to say it. One person. Okay, so now we're going to do a couple more. We're going to get more challenging. Next word. Ooh. Casey. Casey. Breakfast. Breakfast. If you don't associate this word with me, go. It's just time to leave now. Next word. Now, now this is going to be tough. Because who just thought about their arms wide open? Arms wide open. Anybody else? Yeah, so we got some creed. Seminary people are probably like, oh, the, the creed of them, whatever. All right. Dogs? Love? Very interesting. Next word. A lot of people are saying Casey again. I'm okay with this. I'm totally okay with this. Famous psychologist Carl Jung speculated that how somebody responds to a word association exercise reveals something more about their character than anything else. So the connection of ideas and feelings and memories and knowledge in somebody's mind all influence the wordy association that occur to them. So it's really clear when somebody sees the word cat or cats, somebody thinks, my best friend, and the other person here thinks, spawn of Satan. Like, those are the two things. I know Brittany was thinking that wherever you're at, Brittany. Brittany hates cats, wherever Brittany's at. There she is. Yes, she's waving her hand. This has more to do with Brittany than it does with the cats themselves. So then, what about this last word? So, author A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Most important thing to us. Obviously, I don't know what popped in your brains, but I know probably each of us had some little aspect of difference. Some here with more of a fearful association. Some here with more of an an affectionate association. Some here with an even more of a, a passive, like, atheistic association. And as much mystery as we may have in this room, I would be curious to guess what the strangers... Word association, word association with God would be. 
You see, the strangers who we're calling this unknown, mysterious, brilliant, beast-like author of the book of Hebrews. And I, this past week, searched up and down Hebrews, all 13 chapters, for what might be the stranger's word association with the word God. And I believe I found it. And I believe we could safely, and I could safely assume that if the stranger was here today, and he saw the screen and it flashed God, he would have associated that word with the word trustworthy. He would have seen God and he would have went trustworthy. God in the book of Hebrews is presented and proven to be trustworthy. Hebrews 1 essentially says, do you trust that God has spoken? Do you trust that God has spoken in fullness? Hebrews 2, do you trust that God in Jesus is better than angels, prophecies, prophets, leaders, law? So he asked all these questions in the earlier chapters, but then we get to Hebrews, the end of Hebrews chapter 3, and this is what the stranger says. He goes, mm, mm, you're in danger. He goes, you're in danger because you're no different than your ancestors, which is like telling us today, you're just like your dad. Mm-hmm. You're just like your dad. So there's an alertness there because these people do not want to be like their ancestors. So the stranger isn't done comparing. But rather than comparing Jesus to everybody and their mother, he compares modern-day Hebrews with those of first-generation Hebrews. So the trajectory makes sense as the stranger is spewing off words like last week, Moses. If you hear last week, it was all about comparing Jesus to Moses. And we think, oh, yeah, 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 that, that, that one dude. But not so with the original audience to the stranger. They would have known Moses in and out, all narratives, memorized every single story of Moses and all of his words. We have to understand that they understand scripture in ways that we could not even possibly imagine. They've been immersed with it from birth. So from birth, these Hebrews are fluent in the Torah. From birth, I was fluent in like Sesame Street. So you see the different levels here. They process things differently than you or I will. Because look at how verse 7 starts in chapter 3. It does it again. You can underline this word again. Here's what it says. Therefore. Remember this? This is what he does all the time. Conclusion, conclusion, conclusion. Therefore. It is therefore a reason. So when the stranger says, old man Moses, our minds immediately go to an animated cartoon with the prince of Egypt. (laughs) Their minds would have raced towards the exodus when God had delivered his people from slavery, taking those original Hebrew forefathers from slavery to salvation, from oppression to oh mama paradise, the entire goal, and hear me so clearly in this, the entire goal being to save God's people, to deliver God's people, and to deliver them to a promised land. This was the entire goal. Get them out from here, get them to the promised land. Get them from there to the promised land, promised land, promised land, promised land. This was their everything. But then something uh, tragic, heartbreaking, earth-altering happens on that pilgrimage. As long ago Hebrews stood at the threshold of this paradise, this everything, they did not enter. The entire purpose, get them there. They're at the threshold. And they don't go in. The stranger tells us why in verse 15 of chapter 3. Read it with me. Should be on the screen as well. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt left, excuse me, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. For generations upon generations, this exact story was told. The stranger recounts it again to them. Not so that everybody can sit around like a campfire and go, oh, neat story, Grandpa. No. This story of them wandering in the wilderness is told so that the audience, any audience hearing it, can find their own story within it. We are to find our own story within it. So the stranger is saying, don't you see? The stranger is saying, I'm telling you the story, don't you see? If Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses which we learned last week. And there was a rebellion against Moses at the threshold of the promised land, and it resulted in catastrophic events. What will come of you, of us, of me, if we reject the one greater than Moses? You are in danger, the stranger says. You're in danger. This is that argument again, if you remember from our first week of lesser to greater. We find our story, we find our warning, we find our hope within their story. This is the power of stories. This is why we love film, because we find our stories in it. The stranger wants his readers to think of themselves in some way like that generation, walking through the wilderness to God's promised future, and they mustn't, mustn't, mustn't make the same mistakes that the generation did before them. You're in danger. These examples, your ancestors have disqualified themselves. Will that be said of you? So, if something stopped these parallel people from entering, then something can stop you, and something can stop me. Something can stop you, and something can stop me. So, what is it exactly? Enter what exactly? Clearly, the book of Hebrews, a stranger, isn't talking about the promised land, the land of Canaan, right? You can't go there. No, that's not true. We would all just buy Delta tickets right now and fly over there. You can't tell me what to do. We would just go. So it's not that. It's this. It's that the promised land is interchangeably or interchangeable with this beautiful idea of God's rest. It's interchangeable with God's rest. Here, I'll show you. Deuteronomy chapter 12 should be on the screen. I'll show you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is ever right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you all live in safety. The audience of the book of Hebrews, us here today, mustn't run the risk of missing out of entering promised rest. Rest, rest, rest. It's it, it just the idea of rest. The sound of the word rest. How many of us right now would love just to be able to go and have a big old rest? I talk to everybody as they're in. I've talked to, not everybody, but I talk to a lot of people and they're like, I'm tired. 
and I'm busy. I want some rest. I believe in our society, our rat race of a culture, rest, I'm assuming you might agree with me, is one of the hardest things to achieve. We are all working to rest, (laughs) which is crazy. I heard this really silly, cheesy story, but it it drills home my point, I believe, about a woman from another culture who came to America, and everybody she met was so busy and told her so that she thought it was part of our Western greeting. So she began going around talking to everybody, hello, I'm busy, hello, I'm busy, hello, I'm busy. It's a cheesy story, but it proves the point. That to stand up here for me right now to offer rest is like, I mean, it's like offering a LaCroix to like a desert-stranded individual. You want this? You want this? No. Like it's desert, it feels like it's a mirage. Rest seems like more unfounded optimism in Los Angeles. Rest seems like it's more of wishful thinking rather than a promised land. Yet, be encouraged, this is exactly what God offers. This is what God offers. What seems like a mirage in our current state of things, God goes, I'm trying to give this. It was an offer then and it's an offer today to you and to me, which we automatically, I believe, might just do this. Cool. How? Oh, that sounds neat. How? I want that rest. Tell me how. Well, you're in luck. The stranger tells us. So because of that, what we thought we would do, Collective Church, is actually take the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 and focus on this subject, this idea of rest as a whole, on our Sundays, in our discipleship groups, in our prayers. Next week being more of an idea of practical rest, Sabbath, what is the Sabbath type of a thing, how we work from rest and rest from work. Our time after that will be how we safeguard this rest. But today, listen closely, today is the idea of ultimate rest. Today is about what all other forms of rest try and emulate. We have to have this talk today if we're going to understand anything else the rest of this little mini-series. Today we build the telescope, next week we look through it. Because this is the highest level of rest possible. This is the most important form of rest that the stranger is getting at. And it's more than just Serta mattresses or cruise vacation. It all comes down to a small two-letter word like nestled in the verses. If you read this beforehand this week for the Bible reading plan, maybe you noticed it in verse 11. This is the rest he's talking about. As I swore in my wrath, verse 11 of chapter 3, they shall not enter my, my rest. Friends, this is the full if this, is, if this is fully understood, I'll just say this. If this is fully understood, my rest, this has the power to change your life entirely, both Christian or not. If we understand this, this can change our life. Because again, to beat the dead horse, that's a disgusting analogy. But again, the stranger isn't just talking about rest as a geographical space on a map. Right now, it transcends the idea of just a set part of time. That's next week. My rest is what's mentioned here is the idea of resistance. It's the idea of resistance to every heart's inward bend, a counter to our most innate inclinations, which also means we're probably going to get it intellectually before we ever get it experientially. So what in the world is this type of rest, this my rest? 
So Christians here, or if anybody's familiar with the Bible, if I say the word rest or God's rest or God is resting, our mind immediately may go to what? Anybody want to take a stab? Sleep? Okay, but what about God resting? Sabbath. What was that established? Creation. Genesis. You guys are doing so good. I'm so proud of you. It goes to Genesis, where God in this most beautiful, beautiful, poetic song basically creates and speaks our world into existence. It's going back and forth. Let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be cheese. He's going back and forth. But after the creation of humankind, it says God rested. Let me read it to you. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested. God rested. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Again, the sacred rhythm portion of this is next week. But just think about this. I just want us to point this out. If humanity was created in the song, in this poem, on the sixth day, that means the whole garden ceased from productivity and effort and achievement on day seven. Striking as it is, that means Adam and Eve's first full day was a day of rest, not a day of work. They didn't all of a sudden show up and God be like, Time to get busy. Here's your mop. And if you think about it, the only thing Adam and Eve could reflect upon in that very first Sabbath or the very, the very thing they could celebrate was God's accomplishments. Thus, rest was and is never an afterthought. Rest is of the most highest importance. But this my rest is understood here because, just so everybody knows, this is the key to understanding my rest right here. Because where do you see in Genesis chapter 2 where it says God's rest ceased? We don't. It's nowhere to be found where it says God rested for 24 hours and they got right back to work. To live in the here and now, to expect eternity to come, is to dwell in God's good rest. Let me explain. The rest existed long before any sort of promised land came into being, almost as if God himself is a truer paradise. Imagine that. So then my rest, God's rest, is the spiritual promise that no one needs to labor to achieve a certain spiritual level of righteousness, righteousness, no, no, justification, salvation, goodness, or approval. This type of my rest has been called and known as heavenly rest or salvation rest. And if I can just lay this egg right here, the stranger is trying to be broad. If you want to write this down in your journals, he is purposely being vague. Purposely, because he's not coming out and saying it. So is this heaven's rest, Casey? Well, yes. Or is this resting from work? Well, yeah. It's vague to anybody who listens, to anybody who doesn't trust or believe that God at any stage could be shaken awake. This is why the stranger is so distraught, as we saw in week one of Hebrews. He's distraught, he's urgent, he's freaking out. Everything for the strangers in all caps. Everything. He's always at 100. Anybody have a friend like that? Am I that friend? I, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> he's concerned about his church. He's concerned about who he's preaching to that they may not enter in or refuse or reject the promised land because in their wilderness, they too are in danger of missing out. Friends, friends, please, collective church, this could not be more urgent and relevant to us today. 
Holy smokes. Or as one commentator said, the author, again, we call him the stranger, wants his hearers to be in no doubt that this matter of entering rest must be their single most important concern. So the stranger does something he has not done yet, and he goes negative, heavily negative. Essentially, he gets his dad voice on. Listen up. The stranger uses negative examples of those who blew it to drive home the point. Remember, we're seeing this as a cautionary tale. So everybody, go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to look at this again. And a little bit of text work. Hebrews 3 through 7 is a reference to Psalm 95, but Psalm 95 is a meditation on Numbers 14. We did a whole sermon on that back in the fall. But it's this whole like trickle-down thing, and the stranger assumes you know all of it. He's a total punk. He's like, oh, they'll get it. But for clarity's sake, what this does for us is it shows us how it's possible to not, not, not enter, to not have God's promised rest. That's his point. This is how you don't do it. It's a positive point made with a negative example. Okay? So everybody, if you want to put this down in your journals, here it is. These are the elements of an unbelieving heart. These are the elements of an unbelieving heart. Like a witch's brew. It's a snip of this. It's a clump of that, which concocts what verse 14 calls a deceitfulness. The deceitfulness of sin. This is heavy stuff. I promise you this this rest series will get lighter as we go. But we'll get there. I'm going to read the whole thing to start to verse 11. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, underline says it's present day context. He's speaking to a contemporary world, basically saying this is alive. Listen closely, apply them all. This is about now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Like I said, I want to point out three elements of what concocts an unbelieving heart. Because this is so important, that verse, verse 7 where it says, today if you hear his voice, that is, that is more like this, I wish you would listen. That's a wishful longing, please pay attention. That is what he's saying. So collective church, the same promise applies here, or the same hope applies here. Please, oh how I long for us to listen. Okay, so verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Exciting stuff with negative examples. Do not harden your hearts. This is the denial of God. The denial of God. It's communicating to you and to me that the power to harden our hearts is ours to yield. The phrasing is seeking to say the notion that one weighs the evidence. Somebody takes truth, puts it in a balance scales, considers all things, then does this. Here's truth. I don't want it. That's what hardening of hearts does. This is also called apostasy. This is full truth. I understand it's truth. I don't want it. Where we weigh God's truth in the problem of evil, we weigh God's truth in the problem of suffering, we weigh God's truth with fill in the blank, whatever your word association was, and then refuse to listen or believe what's been proven. This collective church is a denial to trust what's trustworthy. Verse 9, 
where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. Point two for the element, elements of an unbelieving heart is the demands of God. Where your fathers put me to the test, provoked me. This is one of the most disturbing elements of an unbelieving heart. Because even though these ancestors of the Hebrews saw God labor and work and love and guide and care, they would constantly and consistently and naggingly demand God to prove that he is trustworthy. That original language is translated more fully as they were purposely trying to, trying to see how much God could bear from their nagging. It was almost putting God to the test. Let's see if we can get God now. Let's see if we can upset God now. Friends, are we not tempted to do this each and every day? God, I know you provided for me then. God, I know you provided for my parents like this. God, I know that you are real. God, I know that you are loving. But if you could just do this one thing for me, then I'll really believe you. This provokes God. Third and final point, verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So this is the third. They deviate from God. Denial of God, demands of God, deviation from God. They have not known my ways. This doesn't mean they're like a sheep without a shepherd. This is not some sort of pity thing. Oh, this is not God or his will was hiding from me. This word known means approve. They did not approve of God's ways or of God's destination. Like when Siri tells us to hop on the 405 at 5 p.m., we go, what? Mm, reconsider. Calculate. See, God would say, go east, and the people are like, mm, west. God would say, fine, go north, mm, south. God would say, be generous with this. We say, I don't want it. God says, forgive that person, not today. God would say, be faithful. We say, I want to leave. God says, love them. We think, no. The results are we always go astray, he says. You do not approve of my ways, so you always go astray. Or how, what is that old hymn? prone to wander. Each of these elements, a serious hole in the boat of trust. The consistent wandering in the wilderness, friends, we most certainly and must see our lives in the wilderness. Christians especially understand this, because this is a beautiful thought. We have been delivered from our own sin, our own bondage, our own form of slavery to sin. God has delivered us through Jesus in the Exodus but then, now, what we are in now is a wilderness. We are in a wilderness as we wander in the now and not yet for eternal rest, our heavenly promised land. The stranger says we cannot, we must not lose trust in the wilderness. You are in the wilderness. Do not lose trust. We must not turn away from truth to what has been revealed. Or thus, we will never enter his rest. So again, trust, trust, trust. Thus, any and all issues or hiccups of rest in our life, and this is important, if there's an issue of rest in your life, it will stem from an issue of trust or belief, period. I'm not a man of rest or I'm not a woman of rest. I'm going to immediately want to poke around and where you trust. Now, hopefully you notice that I'm not using trust and belief interchangeably. They are as different but as complementary as salt and pepper. 
I think we all get that there are many people who believe in Jesus but do not trust in Jesus. There's people in this room right now who said they have been a Christian my entire life but have not trusted him once or approved of God's ways. So then what's the difference between trust and belief? Michael Nofax, a political philosopher, breaks it down into what I think is very digestible, three easy ways. So the first one, if we have the screen for it, public belief. This is what he says the first one is publicly. This is what we say we believe. This is what we say we believe publicly. We're going to sing songs about what we say we believe. We're going to talk in the community. We're going to talk over lunch in Sammy's about what we say we believe. Number two, private belief. This is what I think I believe, what I think I would hope to believe. For an example, I think it's better to give than receive. For an example, I think it's good to be generous, but then the check comes and I'm supposed to tip a waiter. For an example, this is saying, I believe in discipleship, but then it gets challenging. It's what I think I believe. And then the third and final Michael Novak says is this, core belief. I wish it started with P, I really do, but it doesn't. It killed me. I had to quote him exactly. This is the immovable actions of who we are. These are the truest things about our actions and our attitude. So if you want to know what your core beliefs are, do not listen to what you say. Study your life. Study your life. No fact says when these things align, the stranger would agree, when these things align, then you have gone from believing to trusting. But they have to align. See, belief is the alteration of thought, but trust is the alteration of commitment. This is how you would describe the faith, belief, and trust of a child, is it not? All three of these things are completely aligned for children. If you don't believe me, ask my daughter anything, and she'll tell you, honestly, do I look fat? Absolutely, Dad. I don't know why any of you laughed at that. She's extremely abusive. If we want to know what three of these lined up looks like when they're aligned, if we want to know, it's like, wow, that sounds really great. If we want to know what that looks like, we have to study the life of Jesus. This is why Jesus could rest in the belly of a ship as a thunderstorm was going on. This is why Jesus could rest when an entire city sought for him. Jesus, you're not responding to my emails. I've sent you 17 texts. Where are you? Jesus, we need you. And he's just like at rest. This is why Jesus talks about rest and says, learn from me. In the area of rest, Jesus follows it up with this. Learn from me. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read this nice and slow. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to him to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? Take my yoke upon you and what? Learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not for your work week, not just for your day, not for your Saturday morning cartoons time, for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Friends, Jesus just isn't into farming illustrations. Let's talk about yokes today. The Pharisees, the religious people of that day were going around saying, yoke yourself to the Torah. Here they're walking up and down streets telling people, yoke yourself to the Torah. And so what Jesus does here, if you notice this, is completely spins that around. They're saying, yoke yourself to Jewish law, to the burdens of rules, to commandments. And Jesus shows up here and he gives an invitation to himself, not Jehovah, to himself claiming deity yet again and says, yoke with me. Yoke with me, not with your work. It's here Jesus invites a certain type of person to him. And that person is the person whose life is an absolute grind. This is an invitation to those who are exhausted. Jesus doesn't say, come to me all who are just super peppy, ready to go, completely well-rested. Jesus says, come to me those who are exhausted from trying to achieve, to those who are overwhelmed from productivity or effort. Come to me all who are fatigued in need of entering rest. Those whose spiritual lives feel most condemned by not doing more. I had a conversation recently and it breaks my heart that this poor person in front of me was just constantly saying, I'm exhausted and all I keep feeling is that Jesus is telling to give me more time. I should be reading my Bible earlier. I should be saying longer prayers. It was this massive condemnation with the one who should be the reliever of burdens. She is being burdened by him. Jesus does not want that. God's ultimate rest, if you remember, is the freedom from achievement and effort. What needs to be accomplished has been done in the finishing work of Christ. Most know, Christian or not, that when Christ died upon the cross, he cried something out. His very final words. But looking at a hurried religious lives, some live as Christ shouted, you know, you, you better get busy. Some of us live this religious lives as if Christ shouted, I sort of finished it, you do the rest. Eternal rest is for those who believe that the words of Christ, for those who believe the words of Christ and trust that it is finished. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? Simply, if we trust Christ well, we will rest in Christ well. And here's the kicker. Not only is it a key that enters the gate towards rest, trust, according to the stranger, is the only key. It's the only key. Hear me, the only thing asked of us is to trust that there's nothing more asked of us. (laughs) Not our money, not our pedigree, not our goodness, not our moral perfection. And again, I've had so many conversations, especially with those who don't believe, who are considering following Jesus, who say, nah. What's the bait and switch? To think that, to think there is a bait and switch is to misunderstand God and the word association is off. Our belief, our trust is a splendor to him. Brennan Manning, I have this quote again. I think I quote him every week, but this one is pretty sweet. The splendor of a human heart, the trust, It is loved unconditionally, gives God more pleasure than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of a thousand butterflies in flight, or the scent of a million orchids in bloom. Trust, trust, trust is our gift back to God. 
and he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. So friends, when it comes down to it, do you really believe or trust in God? Or do you trust in who he said he is? So in closing, the stranger leaves the negative point and tells us how to avoid unbelief. He wraps it up this way, so that we may receive rest. And again, I'm assuming we're curious how to do this. Verse 12 tells us, take care, brothers, another term from the church, lest there be any of you an evil believing heart leading you to fall away from the living God. First notice, apparently the failure to trust God and his promises is, is the essence of an evil heart, which makes a lack of, I mean, it makes sense, a lack of trust, a lack of obedience. But I want us to focus on these two words, take care. Underline them like crazy, draw a crown above them, whatever you got to do, take care is a present imperative. It means to responsibly, responsibly, responsibly monitor one's own spiritual condition. That's what the original language means. To responsibly monitor one's own spiritual condition. Do we take care of, do something about, or are we aware of that level of trust? But here's the thing. You're supposed to take care and do this, but guess what? The stranger says, you stink at it. We all stink at it. We stink at modeling our own spiritual conditions. Hence, verse 13, the stranger says, but exhort one another every day. Exhort means like pushing people. Exhort means like throwing that fearful kid, you know, that shy kid, the unsure kid out the window of a burning building. Like you gotta go. It was a horrible example, but don't throw kids out windows. Um, throw adults out windows. Like. It is the... It is the makeup of exhortation. You have to go. You have to jump. You have to do this. That is what exhortation means. Hebrews is all about us, you, me, getting dirty. Get dirty. Many of us do not want to get dirty in the church. Many of us have left collective church or other churches because they didn't want to get dirty. Many want this nourishment from a fast food drive-in rather than getting on our knees in a garden. And if we're honest, we all wish this verse right here said, eat pizza with brothers and sisters. But it says exhort. It says exhort. Thus, if I want to, or if we want to trust or rest, whelp, apparently the guardrails to do so is us. If we want trust to rest in our life, the guardrails to do so is us. So here's what's terrifying. What happens if Joe, if Joe doesn't want to exhort Sally? What happens to me if Billy doesn't want to exhort? We are the guardrails according to the stranger, which means we all have a part which means we are all supposed to be throwing each other outside of windows. If you're, I, I, I didn't know if I was, if you're a discipleship group, for those in here who are in a discipleship group, if you're not, I encourage you to be in one. But if you're in a discipleship group here at Collective Church and it's weak and it's lacking and it's unfocused, here's a few things. First, do self-monitoring and take care to see if your involvement is crap. Two, discuss heavily and collectively work towards fixing the holes in your discipleship group boat. And three, if it's weak, focused, or unfocused and lacking, 
then you need to like Jordan peel it and get out. Nobody? All right, I threw it out there just to see what would happen. I was hoping it would work, but don't do that one in the future. So just find a new group. Find a new group. Collective Church, we are not playing spiritual house. Collective Church, we're not playing with dolls. We got stuff to do. This is dangerous. We are in danger. And I love it that Stranger says that you will find a sense of peace or longing or accomplishment with one another exhorting each other. We are not talking, excuse me, we are talking about the opportunities of eternal matters today. Today I'm talking about eternal matters right now and how serious this is right now, right now, right now, today. Verse 13, as long as it is called today, then none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Whatever was today in Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3 is still today. It's today. Do you know what this means? It means the offer of rest still stands, but so does the danger of failing to enter it. There's that urgency again with the terrifying reminder that we can fail. For tomorrow is unpromised and yesterday is too late. Belief must be grabbed a hold of. Belief must be grabbed a hold of today. As long as we can say the word today, we must do something about it, is what the stranger is saying. So I think that'll be a good point to leave us today, is what will we do? How will we respond? Will we trust? Will we trust enough to sing and raise our arms and worship and come to the carpets and kneel, even though our life is not in a joyful circumstance? Will we trust enough to allow the church to exhort us, to pray over us, to allow the church to allow others into the darker recesses of our lives? To open ourselves spiritually, emotionally to those, to be brave and go and ask for prayer from people between the trees or on this side by the shelves. And lastly, do we trust enough to receive communion? Christians, this is for you. Do you, do we trust enough to receive communion right here in the front with the stack cups to remember that every bit of it has been accomplished? Every bit of it. What we are eating is a representative meal of a, va- of a victory that has been won. It's like when they come back from war and the battle's been won and they have that massive meal. That is what we are eating. But it's for those who have self-monitored and examined and are ready to proclaim what says in verse 14, to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end.